beautiful and palatial UltimateSportsTalk.com radio studios. Good evening, everyone. I'm Dave Mitchell, and welcome to the Ultimate Sports Talk Show for this Thursday evening, February 6th, the first Thursday night in February. And boy, has a lot gone on. Again, I was just totally wrong when it comes to the Super Bowl. I picked the Broncos to win, and Seattle is the king of the football world. That is what happened last week, and we're going to get more into football coming up in the second half hour of tonight's show. But on tonight's show, we're going to talk about the Cleveland Cavaliers, what a mess they are. They're not only our lead story tonight, but they're also going to be part of the good, the bad, and the ugly. And they've fired a member of their front office. The Cleveland Browns have assembled a new coaching staff. Can you remember what it was like to be 12 years old? Well, tonight, we're going to go back in time. We're going to speak to Devin Fink, who is 12 years old and has his own baseball website called CoverThoseBases.com. We then will speak with Michelle Jinks of NFLFemale.com on the Super Bowl, the Dallas Cowboys, and Johnny Manziel. But first, after a humiliating loss to the Los Angeles Lakers last night, Cleveland Cavaliers owner Dan Gilbert fired general manager Chris Grant. Gilbert informed Grant of the dismissal late this morning. They are 16-33, and and the Cavs are losers of six straight games, and they're five and a half games out of the eighth and final playoff spot in the Eastern Conference. Gilbert has grown increasingly frustrated with the losing and dysfunction within the Cavaliers, and the loss to the Lakers, who finished the game with only four players, was the breaking point. Brown benched Kyrie Irving, Tristan Thompson, and Luau Dang after only four minutes in the second half. What about Mike Brown? I guess that's the question that I have to ask here this evening. Does Mike Brown get off scot-free as far as what's going on with this team? I've been in Brown's corner ever since he was here the first time. I didn't think the Cavaliers should have fired him when LeBron left, but they did. Cut ties with the guy. Let him go. Adios. The Lakers got rid of him after one season and five games. Now the Cavaliers bring him back, and I've never seen a Cavalier team, not even the team that lost over 25 consecutive games three years ago under Byron Scott, look this bad. Last night, the Cavaliers, in the first half alone, shot 33 three-point attempts, making only five. This team, I don't know what they can do. They've got two star players in Kyrie Irving and Deion Waiters that hate each other. They don't want anything to do with each other, let alone play on the floor together. Kyrie won't pass the ball to Deion. Deion hates to give the ball up to Kyrie because he knows he'll never get it back. But what do you do with this team? They've already made one deal, sending Andrew Bynum to the Bulls for Luol Deng. I thought that was going to be a pretty good move for the Cavaliers. It would give them that wing scorer that they needed. And then they could turn around and they could take the ball out of Irving's hands every once in a while and give it to Dang. But instead, Dang has fallen into the same old lackadaisical play that the rest of the Cavaliers have rested themselves on. I thought Dang was going to be a leader. He's turned out to be a follower. But what can they do? Like I said, can they trade anybody? Right now, the big rumor is C.J. Miles going to Houston. Dion Waiters wants out. He's made that perfectly clear. 
Anthony Verajao, I mean, what are you going to do with him? He could go to somebody. I think he could bring some good pieces back. But do you blow this whole thing up? But just to lay this at the doorstep of Chris Grant and leave Mike Brown absolutely blameless, I don't find that being fair. If this team had 12 guys that hustled as much as Matt Dellavedova did and does, I don't think this team would have any problems. That's their problem. They don't put forth the effort. Mike Brown is a defensive coach. So is Tom Thibodeau of the Chicago Bulls. Now, the difference is Thibodeau is able to convey, instruct, and motivate the Bulls to play the kind of game he wants played. For some reason, and Mike Brown may be the best coach in the world, but unfortunately, he's not able to communicate, convey, teach, and motivate his players to play the type of style that he wants played. And if that's not the case, then he has no business being on the bench for the Cavs. Where's Sergei Karasev? He's the guy that they brought in with the 22nd pick in the first round to be the shooter. Where is he? He's in Canton. Anthony Bennett. He's played a couple of good games this week, but then he goes into lulls. You can't get out of the lulls as a rookie unless you play. Grant made some good trades and he made some bad drafts. That was his persona as GM. Good trades, bad drafts. He pushed for the return of Mike Brown as head coach. Now, Mike Brown, I think, and I'm going to say it right now, should suffer the same fate that Chris Grant did today, getting fired. While replacing Grant, Vice President of Basketball Operations David Griffin has been named the interim GM for the Cleveland Cavaliers. And like I said, we're going to have more about this in the good, the bad, and the ugly segment coming up in just a little bit. We're also going to talk about football in the second half hour with our guest then, Michelle Jinks of NFLfemale.com. But right now, because the snow is on the ground, we've had a blizzard in the eastern part of the United States. I think it's time to talk about Major League Baseball. And pitchers and catchers have reported to camp for the Los Angeles Dodgers and Arizona Diamondbacks this week because those two clubs will be playing in Major League Baseball's opening series in Sydney, Australia, on March 22nd and 23rd in Sydney's cricket grounds, which is going to be fully renovated by the time this game takes place. Now, an evening game will be scheduled for Saturday, March 22nd, to begin the baseball season, followed by an afternoon game on Sunday, March 23rd. The Diamondbacks will be considered the home club in both games, and the rest of the teams will have their pitchers and catchers reporting next week. With that, then the 2014 season will be getting underway. And many players, free agents, are so far without a team to go to camp with. But with the snow on the ground around most of the eastern part of this country, baseball is getting underway. And with that in mind, I'm going to ask the question again. What were you doing when you were 12 years old? Myself, I was playing dice baseball, pretending to do play-by-play of games and shooting hoops out in the driveway. Now, of course, as times go by, things change. Kids text now. They've got their cell phones. They've got the video games. And the older I get, I see some youngsters just seem to get older and others seem to get younger. And that's my opinion of our first guest on tonight's show. He is a lot older than the 12-year-old he is. Well, a couple of weeks ago, our producer, Greg Mitchell, 
came across a website on baseball called CoverThoseBases.com. And it was an extremely interesting website, not just because the articles were intriguing and thought-provoking, but also because the author of these articles is 12 years old. And I want to introduce to you and to our Ultimate Sports Talk microphones, Devin Fink of CoverThoseBases.com. Devin, thanks for joining us tonight. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for joining us tonight. You know, when I was 12 years old, I was playing dice baseball. <laughs> you're, you're writing a blog, CoverThoseBases.com. Tell me, how did you get started on this? Well, um, in fifth grade, uh, I learned how to make a website as part of a school project. Because uh, we were, I was in this pull-out math class, and we were teaching an algebra concept on a website, and I was really loved it. And um, I also had a big passion for baseball, which really started in 2008 when the Phillies won the World Series for the second time in their team's history. And ha- since half my family's Phillies fans, we just were crazy, and that's how I really began to love baseball. And so when I put those two things together, I got a baseball website, and in November of 2012, just after the World Series, I set this up, and um, it's been fantastic. I've been able to keep up with it every single day since then, and it's I've really enjoyed doing it. How do you manage to do that, Devin? How do you manage to write the articles, keep everything fresh, and still go to school and, 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 and do your other activities? I, I write articles on the bus to and from school. I mean, I, I'm very dedicated. When I get home from school, I write an article, then I do my homework. It's just sort of a routine now. Whatever happens in baseball, I just want to write about it. It's just sort of something that's been implanted inside of me. You know, I've written articles in the car. I've written articles, uh, as I said, on the bus. It's just something that wherever I am, I have this need to write and I, I just do. Is this something that you, you can see yourself doing later on down the road in your future? I, I definitely think so. It's really something that is really fun for me to be able to write about something I love and for people to actually read and take note, note of it. And um, maybe becoming a baseball reporter is exactly what I want to do when I'm older. It's just Something that I want to remember in my childhood is loving baseball, and I think this is a huge part of it. And um, I'm really not sure what I want to do when I grow up, but definitely a journalist would be something that would be awesome, definitely. Well, Devin, let me ask you. Devin Fink is our guest tonight from CoverThoseBases.com. Do you play baseball yourself? I do. I, I love playing baseball. What position do you play? I play third base, and uh, I have pitched before, but I, I like that hot corner. So I'm guessing before we went on air, you told me that your favorite team is the Phillies. I'm guessing uh, you probably pattern yourself after Mike Schmidt? Uh, I'm not a power hitter. I, I really like to take my time at the plate and just, you know, stroke it. But, uh, you know, Schmidt, he was a great player, fantastic person. You know, he smacked a lot of home runs did his job at third base. I'm more of a defensive guy, and I like to just, you know, take my time at the plate, not try and hit one as far as I can, try and hit those nice line drives and stuff like that. Okay, let's get into your thoughts about 
baseball and what's going on today. And let's start with your favorite team, the Philadelphia Phillies. They've got their new manager this year. He managed the last half of the season, Ryan Sandberg. What do you see for the Phillies coming up this season, Devin? I don't see good things. I want to be realistic here. I just don't see the Phillies becoming a contender in 2014. Marlon Byrd in the outfield was sort of a gamble. You can't really expect a breakout season at the age of 30-plus to repeat, and that's what the Phillies have really leaned themselves towards with so many different players. And the signing of Marlon Byrd was something that I just do not like at all. And I really don't see much youth in the Phillies, and they're not relying on youth. And many other teams are succeeding from youth. The St. Louis Cardinals, for instance, have a very young pitching staff, and they won the National League last year. The Phillies, on the other hand, they're playing with a team that is every position is over 30 years old, and that's not where you want to be playing. I think the Phillies are going to be finishing in fourth, perhaps even fifth in the division. I really liked what the Marlins did this offseason as well. They There is very... I have very, very low expectations for my own favorite team, the Phillies. Well, and you also said coming on to the interview, Devin, that you think the Washington Nationals are going to have a big year. Yeah, the Nationals are a good young team. They have playoff experience, and they made a very good trade in Doug Fister. They practically stole him from the Detroit Tigers with the um, prospects and smaller guys that they gave up. I'm not trying to hurt the um, Tigers GM. He's a fantastic guy. He's really turned this team into a contender. But the Nationals got Doug Sister at a very, very low rate, in my opinion, and that's going to prove to be key for the Nationals. Also, I think Bryce Harper could become the National League MVP this year. He is ready for a breakout season. We all know the talent's there, and he's just getting ready to put it to use this season in 2014. Devin Fink, our guest from CoverThoseBases.com. Devin, there's some free agents that are still available out there. And, of course, probably Nelson Cruz is the biggest power hitter that's available. Where do you think he's going to end up? No, I'm not exactly sure where Cruz ends up. The rumors on that side are very quiet, which is going to make for an exciting next couple of weeks with all the free agents out there. But I think Nelson Cruz, if he really wanted to go with the Mariners. I think a deal probably would have been done by now because he, the Mariners are the only team that's really shown a lot of interest in Cruz over these past few weeks. Other teams have come in, come out. The Mariners was really stuck there. I'm not sure if they're the team that ends up signing them. As of right now, yes, I would say that they are. But I think you have to sort of see how the rumor mill decides to play it out. If I was to say see where say where um, Nelson Cruz decides to go, I think it is going to end up being the Mariners. I mean, they're just willing to spend so much money this off season on so many different guys, and I'm not sure if they have a winning team yet. They still have to put the guys out on the field, and I think if they want to win this year, Cruz needs to be in that lineup in 2014. But don't count out another team swooping in and signing Cruz. You just don't know what's going to happen. Well, you know, I guess the question that I've got about Seattle is, I know Nelson Cruz has got the power-hitting capabilities, but Kendris Morales has 
been a guy that has really been a big player for Seattle over the last couple of years, and you could probably get him at a cheaper price than you can Nelson Cruz. Why not just go back and keep Morales and let Cruz go elsewhere if you're the Mariners? Well, Morales plays first base, and uh, they signed Corey Hart, who is an outfielder and a first baseman, and also signed Logan Morrison, who has time at first base. So I think that first base is sort of, you know, logged up there in Seattle. I think there's not a lot of room for first baseman on that team. I know Morales could play DH, but I think they want to more have DH open and give other guys a chance. I'm not exactly sure where Morales will end up either. He's a guy that shows a lot of power, and he's going to be very good. Not going to be. He's a very good player. But he has that injury history on that walk-off home run with the Angels a few years ago. He got carted off the field. That was very horrifying and very gruesome. I don't know where Morales will go, but I think that the Mariners aren't in a position to re-sign Morales at this point. Okay, there's three pitchers left out there now, Devin. Let's talk. Let's take them all individually. What do you think about Urban Santana, and where do you think he might end up? Santana's an interesting case. There aren't a super amount of teams that have shown that they are definitely going to be in on Santana throughout this entire offseason and that they're going to be the team that signs them. The Blue Jays have wanted pitching for a long time, but I don't think Santana's the guy that's going to end up in Toronto. I do not really can't really decide where I think Santana is going to end up. But again, the Mariners have decided that they want to contend in 2014. They know what the Athletics have done this offseason. They know what the Rangers have done this offseason. If they want to contend compared to those two teams, it's going to be very tough with their team right now. And based on what I've heard from Santana rumors across baseball, I think the Mariners also could sign Irvin Santana. And it's not just because they're the team that's spending this offseason. It's something that they need and that they are willing to pay for. Especially Santana's price has dropped as well. Buster Olney said that his price came down from originally over $100 million over five-plus years. Now it's down to a three-year deal. I think the Mariners could definitely pounce on that type of a deal, I think, for a pitcher as good as Santana. And he definitely could go elsewhere, as many of these other guys could. It's just been very quiet. But I think the Mariners are a team that has shown interest. The price has dropped. They are looking for guys that are going to take them into contention. Santana's going to be one of them. How about Ubaldo Jimenez? This is where the Blue Jays come back into my mind. I I can really, really see Jimenez coming to the Blue Jays because the Blue Jays need pitching so badly. They finished 29th in the major leagues in starters ERA in 2013 with a 4.81 ERA. And they have not signed one notable pitcher this offseason that I can think of. And Ibaldo Jimenez has been fantastic at times. He was a very good pitcher in Colorado some years, but he started to decline a little bit. Last year for Cleveland, he came back and pitched great down the stretch. He's a guy that I think the Blue Jays are going to want in 2014 
a part of their team, and I think they will sign Ubaldo Jimenez. You know, another pitcher that's available out there, Devin, is Bronson Arroyo. He's been the model of consistency throughout the last seven or eight years, yet nobody seems to be knocking on his door either. Where do you see him going? Bronson Arroyo, he's getting another year older, and um, his ERA was above 3.5 last year, which could signal that he's nearing the end of his line, but he does provide so, so much consistency, as you said. But I think it's going to come down between the Dodgers and the Orioles and the Diamondbacks. They've been named as the finalists, and so they're going to be the teams that are going to be in on Arroyo, and I think he ultimately signs with the Arizona Diamondbacks. I think the Dodgers have a content are content with their pitching staff in Granky, Kershaw, Rue. They've got a great pitching staff there, and I'm not sure how much money they're willing to invest in Arroyo and the Orioles, I think they're going to end up signing A.J. Burnett because of his proximity to his Maryland home. So I think that leaves us with the Diamondbacks as signing Bronson Arroyo. Well, I'm talking with Devin Fink tonight from CoverThoseBases.com. And, Devin, one of your articles that I found extremely intriguing just a couple of weeks ago was who you could see going from last place to first place, much like what Boston did this year. Uh, talk a little bit uh, who you can see a last-place club from last year. Who has the best possibilities of being a first-place club this year? Well, I wrote this article because Boston finished last and then came into first place. But this year, I don't see any team actually completing the challenge that Boston faced. But I do have two votes, one in the National League and one in the American League. The National League, I think the Rockies – have a great team. They signed Justin Morneau this offseason, which he could just go off in Coors Field. He's a fantastic power hitter, and we know the Coors Field effect all too well. He could be crushing in Coors Field this year. The Blue Jays, on the other hand, they still got a good core team with Dickey, Burley, and Reyes. Mm-hmm. In the deal, they, they got Burley and Reyes from the Marlins the year before in 2010. Dickey they got from the Mets. And they, they, that is what they're going to rely on to come back in the first place this year. If Yubaba Jimenez signs with the Blue Jays, that gives them even a better chance to come back in the American League East race. I really think the Blue Jays just need rebounding years from those three guys, a healthy Jose Reyes and rebounds from Burley and Dickey. And they could be the team that finishes in first in the American League East. But the American League East is very, very competitive. Rays, Yankees, Boston, they, and the Orioles too. Don't never count them out. They've got a good club. The five teams in the American League East could be very close coming down to the stretch, but only two or three of them will make the playoffs. So it's really a matter of who is the most complete ball club. I'm not sure that the Blue Jays are right there then, but I do think they've got a good ball club and that they are ready. They've got the players to win. Just It's a question of whether it happens or not and how the rest of the offseason plays out for them. Devin, I've just got a couple more questions for you. The first one I've got to ask you about the Cleveland Indians. They're my team. What do you see for them this year? 
Well, I'm actually wearing an Indian's hat right now because uh, I got it last uh, postseason because uh, MLB Network, I actually want a giveaway. So I'm glad is you it, asked. So is it the Chief Wahoo hat, Devin, or is yes. it the Block C? Yes, Chief Wahoo is awesome. Okay. He, I very, really like Chief Wahoo. So what do you see out of the Indians this year? The Indians, they're, they've got a very, very good ball club. They're young. They're talented. I really, really see a good year from the Indians again this year. But the division they play in, the American League Central, is very competitive as well. You know, you've got the Tigers in there. You've got the Royals in there. You've got the White Sox, who really improved with younger players. And you've got the Twins, who also improved this offseason. I think that that race is going to come down between the Royals and the Indians whoever wins that wild card. I think one wild card will probably come from the AL West, and the other wild card will come from the American League East or the American League Central. And I think the Indians definitely have what it takes after finishing very well last year. I'm not sure, though, with the advanced competitiveness in the American League now, that they are able to get back to the postseason for the second season in a row. They've definitely got the talent, but they need to step it up a notch. And I'm not sure if that's there yet. I mean, they have got the players. That's definitely one thing they have. They've got the chemistry. They've got the manager. But the competitiveness took a whole step up this offseason. Mariners improved. The Athletics improved. The Rangers improved. The Yankees arguably improved. All these teams that are going to be in for the AL wild card race when it comes September are going to be right there who signed a big free agents this offseason. I just don't know whether the Indians are able to leapfrog any of them into the postseason. I think it's just a matter of time before we find out. Devin, your brother also uh, contributes to your website. Tell me a little bit about him. Well, he's only nine years old, and uh, he really, really likes my website. So he, he's wanted to write for my website for a long time. So I decided that what I would do is set up his own page called Brothers Take to have his opinions on the game of baseball. And so he, he's written for um, for a couple of posts there, and uh, he's really excited about it. And it will improve his writing, and uh, hopefully he sticks with it. And uh, we get a really big sight out of it, you know, a very viewed sight. You know, he's just really nice to me, and I really like him. And Devin Fink, outstanding interview here tonight, outstanding website. That website, again, is CoverThoseBases.com. Devin, thanks for joining us tonight on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Well, it's time now for our Good, the Bad, and the Ugly segment. Our thanks to Devin Fink again for being our guest tonight from CoverThoseBases.com. Well, the first story is our good story, if you can get away with it. Florida athlete DJ Law made the most of his national signing day by signing with three schools. Yep, three of them. He signed with Ole Miss, Utah, and just to cover his bases, East Mississippi Community College. They all received signatures from law, and no one really knows officially 
which school got him first, which means the NCAA is going to have to look into this. Ole Miss announced Law's signature at 8.23 a.m. Central Time, and Utah announced it at 3.36 p.m., but the school claims the facts came in much earlier than when it was announced. Both schools say they are looking into the signing. Both schools have him listed as a member of their class, but Utah might have the best case considering that Law actually signed his letter of intent in front of cameras at his school. So DJ Law are good for the night. If you can get away with signing with three schools, hey, what the heck, the trick is trying to play for all three. Well, the bad goes back to the Cleveland-Los Angeles game last night at Quicken Loans Arena, and in one of the most bizarre finishes to a game the NBA has seen in quite some time, the Lakers ended their seven-game losing streak in Cleveland despite playing the final three and a half minutes with only four eligible players. That's right, only four of them. Now, I always thought, actually going into this game, that you could play with four on the floor. But the NBA evidently requires five. Now, the Lakers' starting lineup last night consisted of Steve Blake, Jordan Farmar, Wesley Johnson, Ryan Kelly, and Robert Sacre. The bench had Chris Kamen, Kendall Marshall, and Nick Young. In fact, the injured Lakers didn't dress for the game, was the Lakers actually their most star-studded group. So when Sacre picked up his sixth foul with three and a half minutes left to go, he was disqualified only, as the officials came and said, he wasn't because teams are not allowed to play with only four players on the floor. So the Lakers were assessed a technical foul and allowed to play with Sacre on the floor. In addition, the officials told D'Antoni, any additional foul on Sacre would also result in a technical foul. Now, he didn't commit a seventh foul, and Steve Nash, who's not playing on back-to-back nights because of his back injury, rushed into the locker room when he picked up his sixth foul and put on his uniform and came back out to the bench, although Lakers coach Mike D'Antoni said Nash would not play no matter what. All this after the Lakers flew into Cleveland 14 hours earlier, landed at 6 a.m., and didn't get to bed until a couple hours later. And they scored 70 points in the first half. And the ugly? The Cavaliers lost the game by 11, and not once in that final 3 minutes and 30 seconds did they drive the ball at Sacre and try to get him to foul. A foul would have resulted in free throws and a technical foul. And this is the team that Mike Brown is allegedly coaching in the Cleveland Cavaliers. That's our good, the bad, and the ugly for tonight. Well, the Cleveland Browns filled out their coaching staff today by announcing the hiring of 11 coaches. The staff is sprinkled with former coaches from the Ravens, the Bills, and a few from the Redskins. All are logical as coaches bring in folks they know and are comfortable with. And new coach Mike Pettin worked in Baltimore and Buffalo before being hired in Cleveland last week. And his new offensive coordinator is Kyle Shanahan from Washington. Of course, there are several rumors going around right now that the Browns are interested in trading up from the fourth pick to the top pick and grabbing a quarterback. And Shanahan at today's press conference discussed that possibility and how he'll evaluate 
all the current quarterbacks on the roster. You know, I'm going to evaluate everybody. You know, that's my job to do that. I'm going to do that as best as I can and give an honest opinion. And then you hope that, um, you know, you work hard, you look at a lot of tape, and you give them your true, honest opinion. And then the people that make those decisions decide off that. Uh, I think any time you get a quarterback, you know, there's lots of lots of ways you can win in this game. You know, there's lots of ways to move the ball, lots of ways to score touchdowns. Everybody does it differently. You know, I've been a coordinator six years, and you know, I've played with seven different quarterbacks, and um, each guy's been a little bit different. You know, I've had some real athletic guys, I've had some non-athletic guys, and um, the main thing is you got to be able to adjust. So you got to put in a scheme that is flexible, and um, you got to do what your quarterback's best at. Most notably, he coached RG3 in Washington, and also Kirk Cousins, and there's some major rumors going around that Kirk Cousins would like to be traded to the Browns just to play with Kyle Shanahan. Most noteworthy among the hires for the Browns today was Wilbur Montgomery. He's going to be the running backs coach. He spent the last six seasons as running backs coach with the Ravens. He also played, remember him, for the Philadelphia Eagles when Ron Jaworski was the quarterback, Dick Vermeil was the coach, and they went to the Super Bowl. Well, the voters spoke on Saturday, and the NFL Hall of Fame will have seven new heroes inducted into the Canton Shrine. On Saturday, August 2nd, Derek Brooks, Ray Guy, Claude Humphrey, Walter Jones, Andre Reed, Michael Strahan, and Aeneas Williams will be inducted, all deserving and will represent the game well in the Hall. And then the following day was Super Bowl 48. The snow didn't come, the rain didn't come, and the cold weather didn't come until the next day. And in 50-degree temperatures in New Jersey, East Rutherford, want to give them credit because they were upset all week over the fact that everybody was talking about the game being held in New York. Well, Seattle was the big winner, 43-8 to over the Broncos. It wasn't a good game for Peyton Manning as the Seahawks' defense totally dominated this contest. From the opening, I don't even think you could call it drive, it was actually the first play of the game, when Manny Ramirez, which I thought was very nice of the Broncos to let Manny Ramirez come out of retirement on the baseball scene and play center for them in the Super Bowl, and he hiked the ball over the head of Peyton Manning, leading to a safety, and after that, it didn't really mean much. Seattle's defense just smothered Manning and the rest of the Broncos. I should have known. When I found out a week and a half before the Super Bowl that Denver was going to wear their orange jerseys, they're 0-3 in those crazy things, and they've been blown out all three times in the Super Bowl wearing their orange jerseys. But the weather was not a problem for those in New Jersey, although the next day when people were leaving, that's when they had the problem, and many had to stay the extra night in New York because of the weather on Monday. Yet, Roger Goodell called Super Bowl 48. A success. Well, the professional football season, the NFL season, is over for the 2013 season. And let's go back and take a look at what happened, especially in the Super Bowl and also over one of the teams for the NFL this year. And we're going to do that with Michelle Jinks, who's the official fan reporter for NFLfemale.com. And Michelle writes for the Dallas Cowboys and that website. Michelle, thanks for joining us tonight on Ultimate Sports Talk. How are you? I'm great, Dave. How are you? Happy to be here. Glad to have you here. First of all, let's get into the Super Bowl. Of course, a big blowout win for Seattle over the Denver Broncos. Tell me, were you as surprised as everyone else, or is this what you predicted? I, I predicted a Seahawks win. I didn't predict a blowout. 
Um, I think Peyton, they probably had 10, 10 less points than I thought they would get, uh, uh, Denver. But I predict, I figured Seattle would win. And I'm a, I'm a big defensive play person, and I truly believe, I'm one of those people who believe defense wins championships. And I figure when you put the number one defense versus the number one offense, the number one defense will win that game. I really thought, though, that Denver would be able to move the football a little better than than what they did against the Seattle defense. Was that a surprise to you that they just were shut down completely? I thought for sure that that they would get one, maybe two touchdowns, uh, and that would be it. Maybe a maybe a field goal or two. I had them somewhere between seventeen and twenty points, um, and I figured they may get a, a touchdown or so at the end. But if you watch this Seattle team and you watch the way they play defense, you knew it was going to be a tough situation for Denver. Um, I know that Peyton Manning, he's, he's an absolute genius on offense, uh, but it's something about the playoffs, uh, when that, when that, that pressure comes and that, and the playoffs come, uh, his performances are not always as great. Even in the Super Bowl that they won, when you actually look at that Super Bowl, the running of the running backs, it was raining on that Super Bowl in Miami, but those running backs really played a crucial part in the success that they had in that Super Bowl. Peyton didn't have a great game. I know he was the MVP, but he didn't have a great game. But when you look at Seattle's defense and the way they, the defensive backs, because that's the biggest challenge. And those, they, they, Peyton throws those short passes and then they break them off for long runs. You weren't going to be able to do that on this defense. And so, if they weren't going to be able to run the ball and surprise Seattle with a few runs or something, they were going to have a tough time. Our guest tonight, Michelle Jinks from NFLfemale.com. She's the official fan reporter for the Dallas Cowboys, also a part of the NFL Female podcast every Wednesday night at 8 o'clock and the Zone Blitz Tuesday nights at 9 o'clock. Michelle, before I go back, let me look forward. The Seahawks, one of the youngest teams in the NFL, and now they're Super Bowl champs. Would you consider them maybe a dynasty in the making? If, if they can keep the team together, I mean, they, they have a whole host of free agents coming up. And if they can keep some, particularly on the defensive side, I, mean, I know they may lose some of their receivers, um, but when you look at the defensive side of the ball, if they can keep that core group um, in the defensive side, I can see this team um, having a doctor, because last year, this started last year, actually, and that loss that they had to Atlanta, this started last year, and to see Russell Wilson, and I tell people, I'm just so amazed at the story, to see a young guy like this go to the Super Bowl, and go to the Super Bowl, not to enjoy himself, but to go there to prepare for his time in the Super Bowl, it tells you that they thought for sure that they would be there this year. And so when I look at this team, and you and you look at the side of the ball, um, the the division that they play in, they're going to have to battle San Francisco, and that will probably make a comeback. But I can see this team being one of the favorites uh, definitely next year if they're able to keep some of those defensive players together and, and probably in the next two years. How did you feel this season was for the NFL, Michelle? What did you think of the year so I thought it was an excellent football season, and, and, and I based that solely on week 17. Usually when week 17 gets here, everybody's playing. You know, your, your starters are not playing. You're resting people. The season's over. Nobody has anything to play for. But these were exciting games in week 17. Everybody was excited. 
people needed to win these games to either win the division or get into the playoffs or, or, or move in position for a first or second or home field event. So when you have a football season that can go all the way from, from week one to week 17 and there is still excitement and there, these games are meaningful, then you have a great football season. Well, you're the official fan reporter for the Dallas Cowboys on NFLfemale.com. So let's talk a little bit about the Cowboys and their season and what's coming up forward for them. First of all, what's your opinion of Jerry Jones? Well, and if I can use my T.O. voice when he said Romo was his quarterback, he's my owner. He's my owner. And that's all I can say. Jerry, I really don't know what to say about Jerry Jones. I, I, I think Jerry uh, believes in himself more than anybody else, and, and that's probably our biggest problem is that he believes in Jerry. And he doesn't see what everybody else sees. And even if he does see it, his ego is not going to allow him to admit that. And so that's what we have with Jason Garrett. You know, people have to understand. I, I try to tell Cowboy fans all year, he's not going to replace Jerry, J, Jason Garrett because he created Jason Garrett. He made Jason Garrett offensive coordinator. Then he made him a head coach. And then he let him do two jobs and learn both of them at the same time on our time. So he's not going to get rid of him. He loves Tony Romo. He's not going to get rid of Tony Romo. He's built the whole team around Tony Romo. And so that's what we have. And until he falls out of love with these people, we're stuck with them. Well, the definition of insanity, Michelle, is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. How many times can Jerry Jones change play callers before he realizes that maybe the problem is Romo? If you if you if you look at my latest story that I did on NFLfemale.com and I said what is Jerry thinking and I ended it because there was a a, a question on Twitter and it said what does it take to be a Dallas Cowboy fan and I said strength courage and patience uh, when you see when you see that we have a head coach that's the offensive that's the offensive coordinator then we hire an offensive coordinator to call plays. And then we keep all of these people, and then we hire another offensive coordinator to call plays. So we actually have three coaches who can call plays, and they probably all will be doing it next year. And and I know Tony Romo takes a lot of heat and a lot of blame, but you have to look at the situation that Tony Romo is in himself. I mean, look, look, look what's around him. I mean, I'm talking from the top, not the players, but the coaches and the owners. He has a tough job. He has a tough job. I, I don't know what to expect. And then we get all of these offenses according we won't run the ball. We haven't had a running uh, running game since Emmitt Smith left and went to Arizona. So that tells you a lot about our offense. And for some reason, Jerry continues to pile on the offense, pile on the offense, and the defense can't make people punt the ball. That's where the problem is. Our guest tonight, Michelle Jinks from NFLfemale.com. Michelle, you've talked about the offense now it appears that the defensive coaching staff is really doing the same stuff that the offensive side is because they've made Marinelli the defensive coordinator, but Monty Kiffin, who was the defensive coordinator last year, is now an assistant head coach in charge of defense. So who's actually in charge of the defense? Jerry Jones. <laughs> Jerry Jones is in charge of the defense and the offense. But I, I, why? Is, is Jerry Jones uh, know that he made a mistake when he fired, when he when he got rid of our coach from last, when he got rid of the coach last year, when he got rid of him, 
Was it too soon? Yes, the defense was poor. The defense was bad the two years that Rob Ryan was there. But we had a lot of injuries, so I kind of felt like we should have given him at least another year to see what he can do with, with everybody healthy. So you change the defense and you bring in Monty Kiffin, and the defense gets worse than it was the previous year. And you know you need to fire him, but because everybody said you did, you did you're not going to do it. And so – you, you take you take you take everything away from him and make Rob Marinelli the coach, who probably should have been the offensive defensive coordinator in the first place. But what, who's going to who's who's running the defense? Who's actually calling the plays? It's just a it's a madhouse in the Cowboys, and I tell everybody every time it doesn't surprise me. I don't get upset anymore. I feel like as long as Jerry's there, we're going to be somewhere between seven and nine and nine and seven, and that's who we are. The Cleveland Browns wanted to interview Bill Callahan for their offensive coordinator's position a week ago, but the Cowboys reportedly wouldn't give them permission to interview him. Why not if they were bringing in Linehan as the offensive coordinator? It absolutely makes no sense. We, we wouldn't get rid of, we wouldn't let Callahan um, interview and we wouldn't let Rob Marinelli go to Tampa with Lovey Smith. I have no idea why we have all of these offensive coordinators on our on the roster. If you were going to hire Scott, then you could have let Bill go. But, again, this is because Jerry made the statement. I, this is my personal belief. He made the statement that he wasn't going to get rid of Bill and he wasn't going to get rid of Monty Kitchen. And so he's not getting rid of him, although he's the offensive coordinator in charge of the offensive line. I mean, it, it makes no sense. I'm, and, and if you looked at some of our games last year, no matter what they say, Jason Garrett was calling plays near the end of the season of some of those games. So I'm not mm-hmm. sure what's going on or why we wouldn't let Bill Canahan go. If you're going to take his, if you're going to take everything from him, then, then let the man move on. Well, I guess the obvious question then is, how far is Dallas from a Super Bowl? <laughs> well, we've gone eight and eight the last three years. Um, and since, let me see, 1996, we've done absolutely nothing. We, we, we had three of our last, we had two of our last three games at home this year with a chance to win the last game. All we had to do was win at least two of them and we would have been in the playoffs. The last two years, we could, the last three years, we've lost the last game of the season that would allow us to be in the playoffs. And we haven't done anything, we haven't done anything to improve our team because we can't trust what we're going to get in the draft. You would think we'll get in the draft and we're going to go, okay, we need to get defense, but we needed that last year. And what we do, we got an offensive lineman first and we pick some people who we probably shouldn't have picked or we let some people slip away that we definitely needed. So, again, 7 and 9, 9 and 7, that's where we are. That's where we're going to be. We won't be anything better than that next year. Michelle Jinks, our guest tonight on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Michelle, just a couple of more questions. One of the articles on NFLfemale.com that you wrote was about the Pro Bowl, and were the changes good? Was it successful? How do you feel about it? Were the changes good for the Pro Bowl? I think they were. I have not watched the Pro Bowl, and I can't tell you the year, but Deion Sanders and Jerry Rice probably were playing in the Pro Bowl. But I was excited only because I am a fantasy football buff, and I love fantasy football. So the format just made me excited, made me excited about it. I watched the uh, the draft, and I thought it was good. I thought that the players were a little more engaged. I thought that uh, when you came to the game, 
Um, you saw when you when they interviewed the players, you saw the players talking about where they were drafted and who didn't draft them. So they were a little more engaged. They were a little more excited. And I think that made them play. And when you actually watch the game, and I watched the entire game, which I cannot believe but I watched the entire game. It was an actual football game. They actually went out there and played, and the defense set the tone from the start. They came out hitting, and you can see Drew Brees, and uh, they're looking around like, are they playing for real? And so, you know, they actually played a game, and I enjoyed it. And I used to enjoy them a long time ago, and I think they went back to that. But I think the the, the, the format that they used helped that because some of the players had chips on their shoulders because they weren't drafted by this person or they were drafted a little lower than they thought they should have been. So I thought it was great. I thought it involved the fans a little more. And since everybody plays football and think we're owners, um, I thought that was great. Hey, Michelle, on Wednesday the NFL signed a new contract with CBS giving eight Thursday night games to CBS, and CBS would take over total production of all the Thursday night games. You heard the players a little bit saying this year that they weren't thrilled about playing Thursday night games. Do you see this as a a pattern that is going to continue? Do you think the NFL will just continue this? I I think they are, and and I'm with the players. I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed in that, and I think I probably tweeted this enough. People who follow me are probably tired of hearing me say it. And I didn't get the chance to say it tonight. But, um, yeah, the Thursday, I don't like the Thursday games. I, I think it's just too early. Um, we talk about injuries and we talk about player safety so much. And then you come back and make them play these games on Thursday every week. And that gives them only about two, two days, you know, of turnaround time from when they just played their last game. So I don't think this helps player safety and, I'm going to go back just to fantasy football. Me, I do the weekly predictions for um, for NFL people. It just makes it hard to have to pick so early. Now I have to do this on Wednesdays because we play a Thursday game, and then you mm-hmm. wait two more. You know, you wait a few more days before a Sunday game here. But I, I really don't like the Thursday games. I like it on Thanksgiving, and, and that's enough. Michelle, final question. I'm going to throw you a curveball here. Up up near Cleveland. Of course, the only thing that we have to look forward to every year is the draft. And with the fourth fourth pick in the draft, there's a lot of rumors that Houston would like to trade that number one pick. There's a lot of rumors that the Browns may be interested in that pick to take Johnny Manziel. Now, I'm not a big Manziel fan, but you're down there. Tell me, is Johnny Manziel going to be not a good, but a great NFL quarterback? I can't say that he's going to be a great quarterback. I, I definitely wouldn't pick Johnny Manziel with my number one overall pick. Um, I, in today's NFL, he fits the style that we have right now, um, but I don't know if if he has all of you. I mean, he's a, he's a great passer. I mean, I'm going to compare him to Tebow because that's, you know, that was the, the, the college quarterback, the the um, Heisman Trophy winner, the same kind of running. He's a better passer, a lot better passer than than Tim Tebow was. I'm I'm just not sure that that's going to work in the NFL. I mean, a lot of things you see you see someone do in in college, it's just not going to work on this level. He would have to prove that to me. Right now, I don't see greatness in him. I say he can probably be a decent quarterback, um, but I definitely wouldn't pick him with my first overall pick. I think you can get him later than that. Michelle Jinks from 
NFLfemale.com. Her Twitter name is at the Sports Jinx. She's also a part of the Zone Blitz on Tuesday nights at 9 o'clock. Michelle, thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you, Dave. Our thanks once again to Michelle Jinks of NFLfemale.com for being our guest here tonight. Yesterday was Letter of Intent Day in college football, and the Alabama Crimson Tide, according to Rivals Magazine, remain unchallenged at number one atop the 2014 recruiting rankings. Of Alabama's 26 commitments for 2014, six are five-star recruits, 13 are four-star commits, no other team had more than three five-star players commit in the 2014 class. It's the sixth time in seven years that Alabama has been atop Rivals rankings, and it's the best class ever per Rivals team points totals, which were created in 2008. Here's a look at the rest of Rivals' top ten and how the recruiting classes could help in 2014. At number two, LSU out of the SEC. Matter of fact, most of the top ten are out of the SEC. Number three comes Ohio State. Number four is Florida State. They're the defending national champs, of course. Number five is Tennessee. Number six is Texas A&M. Number seven is Georgia. They always seem to have a good recruiting class, but then again, they've got the John Cooper syndrome. They always seem to manage to go nine and three overall. Number eight is Florida. Number nine, Auburn. Of course, they finished second to Florida State. And then number 10, USC. What I found really interesting about all of this was that of the five recruiting rankings, Ohio State was either second or third in all of them except ESPN. Matter of fact, out of the top 15 schools that ESPN ranked, 11 were from the SEC. Ohio State was ranked number seven, according to ESPN. And then when you wanted to look further into it, the other four schools, other three schools, I should say, other than Ohio State, Michigan, Florida State, and Texas were the only other schools that ranked in the top 15, according to ESPN's rankings. Let's move into college basketball very quickly. Of course, Arizona fell at the beginning of the week last Saturday. They were the number one ranked team, according to the Associated Press Top 25. Well, they dropped to number two this week after that loss. The number one team is the Syracuse Orangemen. They are the number one team in the country. Jim Beheim's got his team unbeaten. The only other unbeaten team in college basketball so far, the Wichita State Shockers. And athletes have spoken for months about their safety at the Olympic Games in Sochi that began earlier this morning, but not anymore. Laura Oaken of Fox Sports reports from Sochi on the safety and what athletes are saying about it. Every U.S. Olympian we spoke with for this story declined to speak about security, saying they wanted to finally focus on why they're here in the first place. Something Sochi officials are hoping the world starts doing as well as they try to figure out the line between making Sochi safe and not spoiling the spirit of the game. 
Forget jumping, skating, or forechecking. These Olympic Games' biggest challenge will be trying to make sure Sochi's heavy security presence doesn't affect the atmosphere. It won't be easy with a huge multi-layered security program containing 100,000 personnel, robots, drones, and sonar systems. Everywhere you look, you see a uniformed officer. Thousands more that you don't see. But while weeks ago the uniforms were the traditional Russian dreary garb, today they are much less intimidating. Designed by Moscow, the Nike of Russia. And nowhere is their presence felt deeper than inside the so-called Ring of Steel surrounding the Olympic venues and village. But it is outside that cone of safety that has many concerns. American athletes have been cautioned by the State Department not to wear team uniforms outside Olympic venues. United States Olympic Committee CEO Scott Blackman gave Fox Sports 1 this official statement. Quote, the safety and security of Team USA is our top priority, period. We are working with the U.S. Department of State, the local organizers, and the relevant law enforcement agencies in effort to ensure that our delegation and other Americans traveling to Sochi are safe. With opening ceremonies on Friday, the perimeter is on lockdown, making it extremely difficult to overcome security and scrutiny which may play right into the hands of the people hoping to do harm. As a security expert from Control Risks, a security firm in Russia told me, the biggest concern is while the world focuses so intently on Sochi, it weakens other parts of the country. All this being said, while safety had been the biggest topic of discussion leading up to the Games, the conversation has shifted since thousands of media have arrived in Sochi, turning to cyber terrorism. The same security expert told me everyone here should assume their communication is being monitored. The Russians know they have a chance to shine on the world's biggest stage, and they are doing everything possible to assure a successful and safe Olympic Games. Well, in the meantime, reporters from around the world arrived in Sochi earlier this week, and they arrived to some very disorienting items. First of all, they found out that their Olympic hotels are still under construction. Some have no running water, no power, no Wi-Fi, or even locking doors. Journalists took to Twitter to share details of their accommodations. Matter of fact, there were a couple of stories today that reporters were running around trying to trade light bulbs from their hotel room for actual doorknobs for their hotel doors. And another thing, the Russians are warning don't drink the water, and they're also saying don't flush toilet paper down the toilet after use. Throw it away. Why anybody put the games in Sochi, I will never know. The competition did get underway this morning, and then it had to stop, almost a full 32 hours before the opening ceremonies. The early starts were needed because of 12 men's and women's medal events that have been added since the 2010 Vancouver Olympics. Men's snowboard slope-style qualifying runs began the event. Then they had to stop them because two of the first three skiers ended up injured, so they had to shave the mountain a little bit. Women's qualifying runs were followed in the afternoon, and women's moguls qualifying was scheduled to start freestyle skiing events at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Men's slope style and women's moguls are among the first medals to be awarded on Saturday. Now in Sochi, the new team figure stating competition will begin at 7.30 at the Iceberg Skating Palace. 
A sad note before we let you go here this evening on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Ralph Kiner, Hall of Fame slugger with the Pittsburgh Pirates in the 40s and 50s, who became a New York institution in his second equally distinguished broadcasting career with the Mets over 40 years, died Thursday. He was 91 years old. Our thoughts go out to his family. That's going to do it for tonight's show. Our thanks to Devin Fink of CoverThoseBases.com and also to Michelle Jinks from NFLFemale.com for being our guests here tonight. Thanks a lot. Boy, they were great. Just a lot of information out of those two on tonight's show. Of course, that music each and every week tells us that it's time to go. Our thanks to Mitchell for being our producer here this evening, but most of all, our thanks to you for listening. We'll have a couple of more guests for you next week on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show at 7 o'clock here at UltimateSportsTalk.com. Until then, I'm Dave Mitchell. Thanks a lot, everyone. Have a good weekend. Talk to you next week. Good night, everybody.